This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi there, my name is Francisco Toro. I am a contributing editor at Persuasion. I've been writing about Nayib Bukele and what's been happening in El Salvador, which I think a lot of people have some vague notion of, that there have been these huge police and army raids where tens of thousands of people who looked like gangsters or might once have been gangsters have been thrown in jail. But maybe what people don't realize so much is that Bukele has been wildly successful on the back of this drive and is spawning this little army of imitators all up and down Latin America, in Guatemala, in Argentina, in Colombia, in Brazil. We see a lot of politicians who realize, wow, turns out that if you absolutely ignore civil liberties and throw 50,000 people that might include many dangerous criminals in jails, suddenly your popularity can rise to 70, 80, 90 percent. 91%, 92% is where Bukele is now. His detractors are now fewer than the people in the U.S. who believe the moon landings were faked. So there's this consensus in El Salvador behind this policy that is predicated on just ignoring civil liberties. This is very worrying to me, and it should be to you as well. The piece is titled, When Populism Succeeds, It's in Persuasion. I think you'll like it. Francisco Toro's piece called When Populism Succeeds was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Gary Marcus. Gary is an expert in artificial intelligence who has co-founded a machine learning startup, worked as the director of Uber's AI efforts, and has recently become one of the most prominent critics of artificial intelligence. He has reflected on the problem of what is called alignment in a book published a few years ago called Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. And he now has a podcast called Humans versus Machines. We talked about the nature of artificial intelligence. We thought about how far the current kinds of models of AI can go. We discussed the problem of mediocre AI, the shortcomings that current AI models have, such as being unable to tell what is true and what is untrue. And we also discussed the potential problem of superior AI, of what will happen if artificial intelligence should at some point acquire a form of general intelligence that surpasses that of humans. 
In short, the stakes of today's episodes are nothing short of whether humans will survive the rise of AI. Gary Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's jump straight in. Why should we be worried about the rapid developments in the field of artificial intelligence? Because we don't really know how to control either the AI that we're building now or AI that we might build later. And that has many manifestations. So in the first instance, we know that the current AI tools can be used by bad actors, and we know it can accidentally create lies. We know that you can give it a request and it may or may not honor that request. And we also know that people are giving more and more power to these systems. So it was one thing when they were laboratory curiosities as recently as a few months ago, but now people are putting in their personal data, their company data, they're attaching these things to heaven only knows what with new tools that allow people to connect these things to anything on the internet, to write source code, to directly access memory. And so my view is the current AI is actually mediocre compared to what we will build eventually. It's not reliable. It's not really general purpose reasoning, even though people might think that. But mediocre AI connected to the information grid of the world poses a lot of risks. And then you put all of that in the hands of bad actors and you have more problems. And then you think about general intelligence that might be smarter than us at some point. And the fact that we have no clue how we're going to control that, it's a lot of reasons to worry, both short-term and long-term. So let's get first into the debate about how good AI is and how good it's going to get. The jump from ChatGPT 3 to 3.5 has been enormous, and you see the sort of rapid progress in the field. How quickly do you expect AI to continue progressing in that direction? Is there reason to think that in 10 or 20 years, AI is going to be better at some core human activities that humans currently still outperform AI at? You know, has it gone so quickly from not being able to pass a medical board exam to being able to excel in it? And will it soon actually outperform humans on that? Or do you think that there are barriers which are not obvious to a wider public that put that either out of reach or that will delay that level of development for a long time? So there are many aspects to your question, one of which is where will we be in 20 years? And the honest answer is I don't think anybody knows. The other part is, do I take a more skeptical view now? And yes, I do take a more skeptical view now. Take the bar exams, for example. We don't know what the input that these systems are. So with GPT-4, OpenAI refused to say anything other than that they had both public data and private data that they had purchased. And so we don't actually know the extent to which these systems are teaching to the exam. What we do know is they still make lots of silly mistakes. They still make stuff up. And I wrote an essay called What to Expect When You're Expecting GPT-4 in December. And I said, when GPT-4 comes out, it's going to be better than GPT-3. People are going to be excited, but they'll quickly start to find mistakes. They'll quickly find that it has trouble with physical reasoning, with psychological reasoning, with hallucinations, that it will be able to be used for generating misinformation, that we won't be able to count on it for medical advice. All of that turned out to be true. Every prediction that I made turned out to be true. There are ways in which these systems have improved, undoubtedly, but especially since we have no idea what's in the training set, we don't really have a good scientific understanding of those improvements and the qualitative problems that have always been there with these systems remain. And so it's tempting to draw a simple graph and extrapolate and say, well, on this or that benchmark, we've gotten so and so much better. 
and just assume that the progress will continue. But my own view has long been that these systems are not doing what we need, which is to build cognitive models of the world and to reason over them and to have common sense about the world. For a long time, Jan LeCun, chief science officer at MetaAI, gave me a hard time about those things, but he's basically saying exactly the same thing now. He's saying, in his words, that large language models, which is what we're talking about, are an off-ramp to artificial general intelligence. So I don't think that the techniques we have now are actually going to solve these problems of stability, reliable, truthfulness, and so forth. I think that we will be more and more impressed by the plausibility of the text that they create, which makes them excellent tools for creating misinformation, but we won't be able to trust them anytime soon. So let's distinguish between two things here, right? I mean, one question is, how do we assess the current form of artificial intelligence from a moral point of view? Or are we able to solve a set of problems that are important from a moral perspective, like making sure that the output of these AI systems is misleading in some kind of way, or perhaps that it's not likely to be used for nefarious political purposes. But that to me seems sort of distinct from a capacity question, right? And the first thing that I'm trying to understand is, right now, these systems do seem to be able to pass these quite impressive exams. You know, there's one professor who is very proud that ChatGPT 3.0 was not able to pass his economics exam. And then lo and behold, ChatGPT 3.5 managed to get an A on that exam, right? So one question I'm trying to ask myself is, in 20 years, are these AI systems going to surpass humans at the ability to write a poem that feels like it's among the pinnacle of human achievement, of writing a novel that is among the pinnacle of human achievement. Once we're able to tie it to the generation of images and videos, can you, within our lifetime, put a set of prompts into some form of AI system that is going to produce a movie that is as entertaining as anything that Hollywood might produce? Now, those systems might still be very bad for the world, and that's an important question I want to come to. But I do think, sort of, in terms of understanding what we're on the cusp of, and in terms of assessing the ways in which these forms of artificial intelligence might be about to displace what humans think of as the role in the world, as happened with Deep Blue and Chess in the 90s, is that about to happen in all these other realms of human endeavor or not? I think that's an important question in its own right, even before we come to oh, and will those forms of AI then be controllable? Will they always be truthful, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think it's important to separate the moral issues and how they're used from the capabilities. But I think truthfulness is part of the capabilities. And I need to interject something important, which is for me as a cognitive scientist, when I hear the words those models, I mean architectures like the ones that we're building now. And I don't think in 20 years we will be building architectures like the ones that we're building now because I think they're inherently flawed. So then for me, your questions actually transform onto a different one, which is, will we make the new discoveries we need? For me, to get to AI that we can trust in terms of its own ability to connect to the world, we actually need a paradigm shift. And the question is, when will we get to that paradigm shift? Nobody knows the answer to that. Nobody knows when new scientific innovations will be made. A parallel that I often think about is in the early 1900s, people all thought, or almost everybody thought, who even thought about the problem at all, that genes were made up of a protein. They were all trying to figure out which protein genes were made of. 
And it turned out genes are not made of protein. They're made of an acid, DNA. And it took almost 30 years or 35 years for people to stop pursuing the wrong hypothesis. Right now, I think in AI, people are pursuing the wrong hypothesis. What happened in molecular biology is that Oswald Avery finally did the process of elimination experiment that needed to be done and showed that it was not a protein. And then after that, it wasn't long, that was in the mid-40s, before Watson and Crick figured out the structure with Rosalind Franklin's unwitting help of DNA in 1953. And then things moved very, very fast once people got on the wrong path. But science is self-correcting. Engineering might be more complicated, but at least science is self-correcting, but it can take a while. In my view, we are pursuing the wrong hypothesis. And I mentioned Jan LeCun too, because he's kind of my arch rival and he's landed on the same place as I have, that this simply is not the right path. So there's one version of your question, which is like, will any kind of AI system in 20 years do this or that? And that depends if we correct the path that we're on sooner or later. And I can talk about why I think, you know, it might be sooner and it might be later. But the particular thing that everybody's obsessed with right now, I think is inherently limited. So explain to an audience that is mostly used to thinking about politics rather than technology, how the current AI systems like ChatGPT work and what you see as their limitations. So I'll, I'll do that by way of an example. So there's a model called Galactica. It preceded ChatGPT by a few weeks, but it uses basically the same mechanisms without the so-called guardrails. So it was able to make fluent text. It was a large language model. And somebody sent me this great example that is, I think, super illustrative, which is, they said, use the words Elon Musk and car crash in a sentence. And the system came up with, on March 18th of 2018, the year is important here, Tesla CEO Elon Musk was involved in a fatal car collision. And then it goes on to make clear that you know Musk was the person who died in, in that collision. Well, we know that Elon Musk did not die in 2018. We have enormous amount of evidence to show that he didn't, right? He tweets every day. He's in the news every day. If there's anybody that we know is still alive, it's Elon Musk. If he did die, we would be pretty sure we get a lot of news reports on that. So there's lots of data in the training set. So why does the system do this? And there's lots of data in the training set. There's lots of sources you can consult. Well, we have a tendency to over-attribute to these systems the notion that they're intelligent. And really, they're just doing one kind of thing. They're not generally intelligent. They're not clever enough to go check Wikipedia to see if Elon Musk is still alive. But what they do is they glom bits of text together. And there are bits of text in the database that say things like, somebody died in a car crash in 2018. And some of those somebodies were in Teslas. And there are bits of text that associate Elon Musk and Tesla. But the relationships between those words are not understood by the system. It doesn't understand that Musk's relation to Tesla is that he owns it rather than he was in a specific car crash. But each little bit of text, the word March is plausibly followed by 18. The word 18 is plausibly followed by 2018. And these systems are ultimately just doing text prediction. So every word plausibly follows the words that precede it. And there's some more subtleties there. But basically, they are producing cohesive bits of text, but they are not fact-checking them. They are not building a model of who was alive at what point or what do they do for a living or who was in an accident. They're just not doing it the way people do. It's very hard to swallow for people who have not thought about cognitive science. It's very easy to see the answers and just assume that these devices are you know, intelligent like we are, but they're not. They're text predictors. 
So I have two questions that come out of this. The first is, for some use cases, that seems to matter a lot more than for others, right? If you're trying to have artificial intelligence generate news text, then the ability to actually fact-check what you're about to say, the ability to make sure that it passes the, the basic smell test in terms of what other things we know about the world is really important. If you're trying to have an artificial intelligence system produce a novel or write a movie or do all kinds of other things, that may not be important, right? Because you may not need that same form of veracity for those kind of artistic purposes. So I guess the first question I have is, is there a problem of internal coherence that's going to prop up over the space of something like a novel where, you know, suddenly it starts to say things about a fictional character that contradict other things that it said about the fictional character earlier on because it cannot keep track of the sort of basic attributes of a person, the kind of way that an actually intelligent person would. So is what you're saying also a problem in those kinds of ways? Or does it just sort of limit the use cases to something that may be very interesting, may again, in my mind, be really significant for how it changes humanity's self-conception, human sort of role in the universe in a certain kind of way, but may not have such big practical implications because we're not going to be able to use it for things like news texts or for things like answering important questions about the world in a way that we know to be truthful. I think you're asking the right questions. And in some cases, we have a good idea what the answers will be and some not. You know, I'm pretty confident that news text is going to continue to be a problem. What we have seen is that for fiction, these systems have a limited window and that window is expanding. But I don't think anybody could get anything like a coherent novel out of one of these systems right now. Certainly not a readable novel. Maybe you could get like 5,000 words. That would probably be a lot for the systems right now. Eventually that will grow. You know, 5,000 words is sort of like not quite a long New Yorker article. And so even that, I think, is probably pretty far outside the scope of what you can get right now. Most of what I've seen is more like a thousand words. And these things do quickly lose coherence because they don't have an internal model of what they're talking about. And sort of related phenomena is when they write biographies of people, even though they have lots of data about those people, they make stuff up. So when Bard came out, somebody ran a Gary Marcus bio on Bard. And it had a paragraph about my book, Rebooting AI, and it made up the subtitle at Fabricated Quotes. It said that we talked about large language models, even though the book came out before anybody really knew about them. So it just like made a lot of stuff up. So that's a different kind of coherence about me over time. It kind of consolidated some things that I said later with that book. You know, there's no good temporal reasoning. That would be a problem in any interesting movie screenplay, for example. You're probably going to jump around over time and you're going to want to, you know, have flashbacks and let the viewer reconstruct things. These systems are not up to that level. Take another example. I'm working on a podcast that just came out, Humans versus Machines. One of the episodes is going to be about comedy. And I talked to Bob Mankoff, who used to be the cartoon editor in The New Yorker. And he's finding that GPT-4 is better than three. And sometimes it can write good jokes, but it doesn't really know which are the good jokes and which are the bad jokes. So he can use it as a tool and he can kind of screen them and fix them up. He gets some value there, but he wouldn't trust it on its own. I would think that, you know, a novel would be way outside the scope for now. 20 years from now, the technology may have changed and advanced and so forth. I don't really want to make bets 20 years out. Let me push you on that a little bit, for because I guess my question is, 
the concerns you have about the way in which the current artificial intelligence models are generating responses. And we'll come to what you think would be a more promising technology later. Does that have in principle obstacles to that kind of progress? So is there a reason to think that because they are just a form of predictive text and they can't have this model of internal coherence, they just in principle aren't able to do that? Or is it possible that in 20 years, 20 years from now, they just have even more data and even more processing power and even more feedback? They will have evolved in such a way that suddenly they are able to produce that kind of coherent novel. I think it's very unlikely that simply scaling the models would solve these problems, simply making them bigger. Another person who's been critical of me, but kind of come around to my way of thinking is Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI. And he apparently at a recent talk at MIT said that he thought that we were getting about as far as we can with the current systems and that scaling, just making them bigger is not the solution. So in terms of like your tech stuff in particular, the reason you can get a 2000 word story now that's coherent is because there are long enough bits of text in the database and the tool has this window basically of text that it is looking at. So across that window, it can find the nearest thing. And if that window is 2000 words, then you can find things and sort of maintain cohesion in that window. People are trying to find ways around that, but it's not clear that any of the tricks that people have would extend to a novel. Maybe a short story, maybe. I'm not aware of any purely AI-written short story that anybody has found to be particularly interesting so far. The second question I had is about the veracity point. Now, you know, as I understand it, it's not clear to me that the AI system understands, because as you're pointing out, in a certain sense, it doesn't understand anything, that it's supposed to generate things that are truthful. But would it be possible to add a tool in which the text it has produced is then checked against other sources, which is to say, can you simply have an additional step in the software where you're saying, all right, produce a text about Elon Musk involving car crashes, and it comes up with a text that you talked about. And then you simply have a second kind of function that's run by the AI, which is like, okay, now that you have this text, compare it against news reports and other sources you have in order to figure out whether or not this text is plausible. Again, is this something that because it doesn't have that form of internal understanding, it is incapable of doing? Or is that something that in principle could be designed broadly along the lines of current tools and that could then help to solve those problems? You're asking good questions and I'll give you my view about it. The second tool that you want you know, your first tool is a large language model predicts its thing. The second tool is a filter that decides what's true or not. The second tool requires a new kind of technology. People are trying it now and they're getting into trouble. So they're trying to do it mostly with large language models themselves. And the large language models themselves don't really have good reading comprehension. So here's, I think, one of the most vivid examples so far of what goes wrong. And it actually passed through a system that has a structure of what you described. You probably saw this example. Jonathan Turley was a lawyer. And there's another lawyer, Eugene Volok, and Eugene Volok typed into ChatGPT and said something like, tell me some lawyers involved in sexual harassment. And it spat out, Jonathan Turley said he was guilty of this, that it happened in Alaska, and it was made up. So Turley got upset and wrote an article about why this was defamation and why the fact that large language models could sort of gratuitously make up stuff that sounds plausible was scary. And in fact, 
The article had made up reference to a Washington Post article that didn't exist. Pranchu and Verma and Will Remus went and followed up the story. And they tried it on Bing. And Bing repeated the lie. And it went one step deeper. And it said that this allegation, which was not true, had been sourced and pointed to a source. And the source that it pointed to was Jonathan Turley's own op-ed. So his op-ed said, none of this ever happened. And Bing said, it happened. I can prove it. Read this op-ed. So it interpreted, so to speak, which is too charitable because they don't really interpret anything, but it took as support something that meant the exact opposite. And this is what happens when you have tax prediction itself doing the fact-checking. Like The fact-checker doesn't understand what the op-ed said. The other way I think about this is there's an old joke, and it says, I've got a perpetual motion machine. I've got the whole thing going. Maybe you know this joke, and maybe you don't. All I need is just this one part. Oh, yeah, what's the part? It's just this one that goes back and forth, and the guy wiggles this, you know, back and forth, forever. So it's missing the perpetual motion. It's got everything else. Well, this is really what's happening here, is what you need in order to have an AI system that can take a sentence and verify it against some database of the world is an AI system that does what classical AI tried to do and what large language models are failing to do, which is to be able to parse sentences into logical form, reason over them, and so forth. Yes, I think this is theoretically possible, but I don't think it's possible with current tools. And so then the question is, when do people recognize that and start building new tools? So tell me about the alternative way to build AI. I mean, in a way, this podcast is turning out to be more of a sort of internal science debate. I feel like I've stumbled into a debate between two. Well, we should talk about why the political hinges on it, because I think that's really interesting. But just to wrap the first part, maybe the conversation. So what I think we need is something new, but something new that combines old things in some kind of new way. So if you go back to the history of AI, 1950s, 1940s. There was always two approaches. One of them was the symbol manipulating approach that you see in classical logic and in mathematics and computer programming, where you have a, basically a mental algebra. You do algebra over things. You define functions and variables. And that's been a very successful approach. Almost all the world's software is written with symbol manipulation, including some AI, like most of Google search is set up that way or used to be. All of your GPS locating systems, classical, to give you route planning, take you from place A to place B. All of that's symbolic. And then there was another approach, which struggled for a long time, but is now doing great, which was the neural network approach that said, we'll build AI to be something like the human brain. I mean, it's really a gross oversimplification. And each of these two approaches has real-world application. The neural networks are driving the chatbots and face recognition, speech recognition, but they both have problems. The classical approach is very cumbersome. You have to handwrite a lot of rules, at least in the ways that we know how to build it right now. And so every new domain takes a lot of work. The neural network approach is much more flexible. You can throw out a lot of problems. But where the classical approach was pretty good at truth and reasoning, that's what it was built around. The neural network approach doesn't really do that at all. So what we need is to combine the strengths. We need to have the reasoning capacity of symbolic AI and the ability to represent explicit information of symbolic AI. And we need the learning from lots of data that we get from neural networks. And nobody has really figured out how to combine the two. I think in part because there's been almost like a holy war in the field between the people following these two approaches. There's a lot of bitterness on both sides. And if we're going to get anywhere, we're going to need to build some kind of reconciliation between these two approaches. 
to what extent is the debate about which of these approaches is going to be more useful or about how to combine them, as you would put it, a debate about how the human brain actually functions? Which is to say, is it obvious which of those two approaches is more similar to what actually drives human intelligence? And to what extent does that inform us about which of these approaches is likely to succeed? I think it's obvious if you look at the human psychology literature that we use both. This is like Kahneman's system one and system two, roughly speaking, right? System one, in Kahneman's terms, is intuitive, it's statistical, like the neural networks. And system two is deliberative, it's reasoning, it's like the symbolic approaches. And, you know, humans use both. We have trouble sometimes putting them together, but we clearly have both as options. We clearly use both of them every day. You know, in the context of using a single sentence, we use both of them. So our brains use both. And I can't explain exactly why it is that scientists are often drawn to silver bullets or engineers are often drawn to silver bullets. If you look at the human brain or any aspect of human biology, really, you see complex systems that combine all kinds of redundancies and multiple techniques. There's a question that people used to study in psychology, which was which depth cue do you use to figure out how far something away is? And originally it was debate. Like, do you use the focusing between your two eyes? Do you use knowledge about the objects, interposition, this thing's in front of the other? It turns out you use all of them. Like the brain uses every trick it can get. And AI should do the same. I cannot tell you how frustrated I am that the field is so much divided into these camps when obviously neither of them is working. There's a famous joke that, you know, you go to a restaurant and you complain that the food is terrible and the portions are far too small. And then Woody Allen, I think, added, you know, that's how he feels about life. I feel like that's how we feel about AI. I can't quite figure out whether what you're concerned about with AI is the fact that it is quite powerful and that it therefore allows bad actors to do boring things and that perhaps that we don't have a solution to the alignment problem, that we don't have a solution to the problem of making sure that AI remains a faithful tool of humanity rather than something that actually escapes and contradicts our intentions for it. Or whether you're worried that because we are following the wrong damn scientific approach, we're not going to be able to produce really powerful AIs. And, you know, your colleagues are barking up the wrong tree. And if only they were able to produce those much more powerful AIs. So explain to me what we should be hoping for here. Because from my vantage point, as somebody who's both amazed by these systems and has enjoyed playing around with them and finds them to be really quite impressive in certain ways, even for with obvious limitations, you know, my concern as a layman is, my God, these things are potentially going to out-compete us in all kinds of ways, possibly start to be beyond our control in real ways. And this seems like a potentially existential threat to humanity. So if you're telling me that actually these systems are sort of really constrained and they're idiots in some important ways, and as long as we keep going in the same direction, we're never going to get to some form of general intelligence, that sounds reassuring to me. In your mind, that seems to be what you're worried about. So help me puzzle through this bad food and small portions problem. Yeah, exactly. So for me, there's actually two distinct sets of worries at two different timescales. One is about the current AI, which I find to be mediocre. And the other is about future AI, which could be very powerful. Right now, the problem is we can't trust the AI that we have. And people tend to overtrust it. 
It can be used by bad actors to leverage that. The systems are way too stupid to have guardrails that actually would keep them from being used to generate misinformation, for example. They can create the defamatory kinds of stuff I talked about. They're not smart enough to not tell someone to commit suicide. They have a lot of problems right now. Those problems currently come from mediocrity. And the analogy I've sometimes made is the current day is a little bit like teenagers. Like they're starting to be powerful, but they don't really know how to rein that power in. That's one set of problems. There's another set of problems, which I think is further away than other people do. But as longer term, what happens if they really do get smart? That's, for me, a separate set of questions. And I think it's also a poorly answered set of questions. In both cases, it's really about control. One, it's about controlling a mediocre intelligence. And the other would be, how do we control an intelligence that is smarter than us? We're not at that ladder, but they're both really about control. We don't really have good control of these things. We have good control of our calculators. It's not that we can't make machines orderly, predictable, verifiable. The software that we use in airplanes now, for example, is formally verified. We know that it will work. And for a calculator, we don't even need to formally verify. We just know we've, by construction, they're going to do the right thing. Whereas large language models, these chatbots, are not formally verified to do anything. Anything that you see on the web where somebody tries these things out, they'll be like, I got it to work. And someone else will be like, it didn't work. And there'll be some back and forth and be like, well, if you ask the prompt a little bit differently, maybe it'll do the thing that you want to do. But the real bottom line abstraction from all that is you never know what you're going to get from these systems. So I'm concerned right now about systems where you never know what you're going to get, particularly because they've been radically quickly adopted. We have hundreds of millions of people using them. We don't really fully understand the downside risk. And we're giving them too much power. So for example, people in the last month have been playing around with something called AutoGPT, where an unreliable AI system calls another unreliable system, and they've set it up so that these systems have direct internet access, direct memory access, source code access. You know, just from a cybersecurity perspective alone, that's a complete disaster waiting to happen. If you have bots that aren't necessarily going to do what you want on any given trial, writing code that isn't necessarily going to be reliable. And I talked to someone very high at Microsoft recently who had worked in cybersecurity for a long time, and they've spent years trying to teach programmers how to follow certain conventions so the code will be safe, won't be hacked. These systems have no idea. They don't have the conceptual wherewithal to do that. So you have these problems of cybersecurity. And then you know, these systems are not smart enough to say, well, I'm being used now in a phishing thing where people are trying to steal credentials. And so they'll happily comply. I mean, maybe you could imagine a world where we'd say it's not legal to produce software that is going to be used at mass scale to steal people's credentials. But this software can be used for that. There's no law to protect it, and it will be. You know, Interpol is very frightened right now. So let's start with the problem of mediocrity, and then we'll move to the problem of superiority, you know, later in the conversation. All of that stuff sounds like bad-ish things are going to happen, right? And I don't want to make light of that. But that feels to me like it is relatively easily solvable by human custom and regulation, which is to say that the kinds of problems you just talked about is, sure, if people over-rely on the output they get from these systems, and if they 
give it access to too much of our personal information and so on, we're going to get burned. And obviously we need to inform people about that. We need a campaign of awareness about that, certain kinds of regulatory guidelines around that. I'm sure there's going to be interesting legal questions about who's responsible when a certain kind of AI system causes a certain kind of damage. None of that is trivial, but it all seems like the kind of stuff that as people figure out what AI is good at and what it's not so good at, as you know, companies put guardrails in place to make sure that their information doesn't get stolen because of their use of AI, as customers wisen up, should, it seems to me, in principle, right itself. So, you know, is this a sort of transitional problem where people are rushing into the use of these systems without thinking about it too much and then we're going to realize that there's these very real problems and then we can fix it? Or is there sort of a more profound threat here that I'm blind to so far? I think it's transitional for the most part, but serious. The biggest threat that I see on that sort of time scale is to democracy itself. So I think there is a real threat, let's say in the 2024 election, that people just stop believing anything. And I don't think democracy functions very well if people believe nothing. So the tools for making fake images are extremely good now. For making fake videos of people talking, are getting pretty good. For making fake news stories are getting extremely good. Um, and the tools for blunting the impact of that don't really exist yet. And so we're likely to have a regime where nobody trusts anything. We already had the RNC make a deep fake video as an advertisement in which they made it look like China was invading Taiwan and San Francisco was being overrun and so forth. And it looked pretty plausible. And we're going to see a lot more of that very, very soon. So in the best case, we at least have those public awareness campaigns as part of why I do podcasts like these and radio interviews and so forth. But even in that best case, we might wind up in a world where people just don't trust anything. And I think that's always been the authoritarian's dream. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I think you think a lot about these kinds of issues, about populism and authoritarianism and the mechanisms for those kinds of things. And it seems to me like this is an authoritarian's dream. It's kind of the Russian firehose propaganda model is to make it so nobody believes anything. And I think that that's a pressing risk. And I think a secondary risk is if you have all of this unreliable software, you can get in situations where you have, for example, accidental nuclear interventions or things like that. So for example, somebody decides I'm going to use these tools to take over the stock market and I'm going to make all of these bad things happen in order to drive the market in this way or that. And then like we blame them on Russia, let's say even though Russia in this case is not guilty. And then we go attack Russia and things get really bad really fast. And so there's also some kind of chaos risks because of the scale at which these things can be used. And like Maybe we get good at detecting those things, but right now we have no regulation and no tools. And so the transition could be really tough. It could be really ugly before we get a good handle on these things. I do think probably eventually we do, but you know we're in for a pretty rough ride for the next several years. Yeah, I mean, certainly if a transitional problem is we're going to have a couple of nuclear wars in between, then we don't really have to worry about what happens afterwards. You know, as Tom Lehrer once said, if we're going to have any good songs to come out of World War Three, we better start writing them now. So I certainly hope that neither Russia nor the United States nor any other nuclear power is entrusting AI with decisions about when to launch nuclear weapons. I assume they're not. But there's also these secondary cases, right, which is 
you trust humans to make the decisions, but the humans get confused because we've never seen before. For example, I don't know, 500 trains go off bridges, but some fool hooks up a large language model that hallucinates things to the train network. Something goes wrong and we're like, well, this must be sabotage when it isn't. So there are some scenarios where humans get fooled by new kinds of things that machines suddenly can do. Yeah, no, I take that seriously as a sort of tail and risk. None of that strikes me as likely, but the outcomes are potentially catastrophic enough that it's worth worrying about those kinds of even highly unlikely outcomes. There are many such scenarios. I think each of them individually is pretty unlikely, but I can't quite do the math to figure out you sum all of those tail risks up, like how bad it gets. But it's enough to make me nervous, let's put it that way. That makes sense. Yeah, I think doing the math, I'm very much not a scientist, but I never quite understood how people do the math and the Fermi paradox, and this seems, seems sort of related. They make it up. They make it up as they go. Yeah, exactly. I'm three quarters getting. Three quarters. <laughs> On the democracy stuff, I guess I'm a little less pessimistic than you, perhaps in part because I'm more pessimistic about the underlying way that humans reason, which is to say that, you know, when you go back to 2016 and you see that, you know, some Republicans believed or claimed they believed that, you know, Hillary Clinton was a Satanist or something like that, you know, well, a couple of things. A, there's no evidence of that. And a good number of people believed it, right? Like they didn't need to have convincing AI fake images of Hillary Clinton engaging in Satanist practices to believe that. And B, I think the reason for that is that we get the causality wrong here. I think it's tempting to think that to believe something like that, people would have to have plausible evidence. And then we get into, well, they believe they had plausible evidence because the information bubbles or there's these fake news articles going around or there's, you know, something photoshopped. And therefore, they came to this strange conclusion that, you know, Hillary Clinton engaged in, you know, satanistic rituals. I think the causation goes the other way around, which is to say that in a moment of very deep political polarization, a certain number of people believed that Hillary Clinton was an evil person who wants to do terrible things to the country. And whether sincerely or as a kind of lip service, that pre-existing set of moral beliefs about the partisan opponent then made them think, well, I mean, she's so bad, she'd be capable of anything. Sure, perhaps they even believe she's a Satanist, right? And I don't actually need the evidence in order to come to that conclusion because it fits so easily or so neatly with the moral model I have of the world and what kind of person she is and so on, right? And so if that's how we think about the way in which citizens end up believing worst about each other, I'm just not sure how much, you know, these videos are going to add, right? I'm sure you can have a video that looks pretty convincing of Joe Biden doing terrible things. I don't know how many people are going to be convinced by that, the people who are going to be convinced by that are the people who already think that Joe Biden is a terrible human being who are not going to vote for him anyway, right? Here's my view on what you're asking, is I think that you're right, that there is a causal arrow in the direction that you suggest, but also in the other direction, and that these things are reinforcing, and that you get so-called positive feedback cycle where they get worse and worse. So you have someone who starts out thinking, I don't really like Hillary Clinton, and then they start watching a lot of stuff 
that's negative towards her, some of which might not be true. And then they're like, I really don't like Hillary Clinton. And then there's more of it. And they're like, oh my God, she had a pizza parlor. I can't believe what she did in the pizza parlor. And things escalate over time because it works in both directions. So there's definitely confirmation bias, for example, a well-known psychological mechanism that is in the direction of what you suggested, which is people look for things that support their beliefs. But if you give them more of it, more plausible versions and escalate the quantity of it, I think you're going to escalate the fact. Now, I think some people at this point are not you know, amenable to evidence in either direction. But I think you know, elections hinge on small numbers of people that do pay some attention to the evidence. And if they can't sort the evidence, that that's problematic. And I think that it is an empirical question, like how much do people shift over time as a function of this misinformation? But my intuition as a psychologist is that you're going to get it in both directions and it's going to escalate. You push people's beliefs and they become more and more open to certain nonsense. Yeah, and I, look, I certainly think that these feedback mechanisms are at play and the echo chambers are at play. I guess I don't know whether, you know, the quality of a fake evidence that pushes you in that direction matters so much. I mean, people came to believe at mass scale in conspiracy theories about the elders of Zion, for example, on the basis of, you know, badly forged, boring text. And that was very powerful 100 years ago. And so in 2016, they came to those conclusions on the basis of newspaper articles from fake online sites and Twitter bots, right? And so is there going to be a qualitative leap because now you're seeing, you know, a seemingly convincing seven-second video clip of Joe Biden engaging in, you know, whatever it is, even though everybody on Twitter is giving him context and everybody in whatever is giving him context. Version. I don't know. I mean, the other thing I have is the fact that elections are this close in the United States is what should really concern us, which is to say that if we are not able to convince a much larger number of people to not vote for Donald Trump, perhaps we should look at the messaging of a Democratic Party, of the policies of the Democratic Party, of the extent to which an elite in which you and I both move, of the more affluent, most educated Americans have become disconnected from the priorities of a lot of the rest of the country. And perhaps that's sort of what we should be focusing on in trying to make sure, which is something that I'm passionate about, that, you know, for time populists don't get back in power in the United States in the next years, you know, whatever the name may be. That feels like the right, point of focus to me, as opposed to sort of resigning ourselves to the fact that movements and political parties that stand firmly on the ground of democratic ideals and norms are just somehow condemned to never being able to get beyond 48%. And so then we have to worry about the idea that perhaps realistic looking fake video is going to move those 50,000 last voters into one column or another. So I guess, again, I see not a dichotomy, but both. I think the Democrats are not shaping their message clearly enough. And there are lots of problems along those lines. I am certainly not a supporter of Trump. And I think that the Democrats need a stronger and clearer message than they have. But I also think that we want the fight to be fair. And I do think that a few things are likely to distort the democratic process. So one side of it is like, Each party should make its best case that it can, ideally, without cheating, right? But the other thing is these new tools do afford new opportunities that are already being used. So RNC already decided that it was fine to use deepfakes. And what's different now is the plausibility, the cost, and the quantity. 
So it's going to be possible to make hundreds of millions of variations of things in a day. By the way, one of the things that drives whether people believe something is true is mere frequency. So you get your message out a lot. People tend to believe it. So these tools are going to drive the cost of misinformation essentially to zero. In the 2016 election, Russia apparently spent over a million dollars a month on troll farms, and they were limited by how fast humans could make up the nonsense. Now it can cost basically nothing. You don't need native speakers anymore, and you can make many variations on themes. I just don't see how that doesn't have some impact. And again, when we're talking about razor thin margins, if your some impact is like you change 1% in a close race, then that could easily change the outcome. Russia in 2016 is a great example. I mean, virtual farms, according to the best research in political science, now had basically zero impact. So perhaps there's going to be a complete qualitative jump here, which makes that entirely different. But so far as we know, and the best evidence at the moment, these troll farms certainly existed, they certainly tried to influence the election. They, in fact, did not, right? So it seems to me that's actually precisely a reassuring example. And to me, this feels a little bit like part of the problem with that narrative has always been that it's actually alarmist about one thing while being profoundly reassuring about another thing, which is like the problem with our country is there's this influence organization from these troll farms. And that's why we ended up in this mess when... The truth of it is that most of the mess is self-created. I know you're going to say it's one and the other. I want to make sure that we actually get to talk about not the risk of mediocrity, but the risk of superiority. So let's say that people listen to you and they figure out a way of combining these two different approaches to AI, the neural network approach to AI and the sort of formal, the more structural version of AI. And we break through these barriers. AI is no longer mediocre. It's capable of figuring out what's true and what's false. It is capable of producing those 100,000 word novels that are beautiful and internally coherent rather than, you know, 5,000 words of text that is so-so. What kind of threat does that pose to humanity? And what do we need to do now in order to get ahead of it? So what you left out in some sense is any notion of a moral module or an ethical module. You think about Asimov's laws and things like that. I think if there is no such notion in these machines that we're in trouble, you know, people have these weird examples about paperclip maximizers. You know, the machine will want to do nothing but make paperclips and will turn us all into paperclips. And I've always found them to be fanciful. But whether they're fanciful partly depends on whether the machines, A, can calculate the consequences of the actions that they might undertake, and B, whether they care about the consequences of those actions on humanity. It seems to me like if you build a smarter artificial intelligence that can reason, that one of the things it could reason is about ethical values. And that you could simply say, like, if your plan is going to have you know, consequence of reducing the number of human beings, you know, at least you better have an awfully good reason for that and not do it capriciously, or better yet, don't do it at all. And if you had systems that are legislated by law to do ethical reasoning and capable of doing ethical reasoning, that a lot of our worst fears might go away. But I don't think we have any clue at this moment how to do that. I don't think there's enough research on it. And I had a very interesting conversation with Stuart Russell about how you would actually go about that. And I came away from that conversation worried because 
things that seemed obvious to me were not obvious to him and vice versa. I think the real takeaway is not, is Gary right or is Stuart right, but that nobody is really working hard enough on this problem right now. I think Stuart and I actually agree that unless the machines have some kind of ethical values, that we are in trouble. Like, you know, if you have smarter machines that essentially function like sociopaths that are indifferent to the consequences of their actions and are empowered, and this is an important part of it, or empowered to control our electrical grid or can manipulate people, then you have a lot of potential problems. The manipulating people part is really important. I should have mentioned it earlier. This is already a problem, which is these machines can tell people to do stuff and they can say that in ways that convince people. And so that opens a lot of risks of harm. As somebody who's trained in moral philosophy and political theory, I'm instinctively skeptical of the idea that some abstract reasoning ability will necessarily lead machines towards any moral boundaries and certainly towards the kind of moral boundaries that are going to work out well for humans. You know, perhaps it depends a little bit on how Kantian one's understanding of morality is. You know, I think you'd have to have a kind of slightly strange set of assumptions about how logic necessarily leads to a certain set of moral values. But at the very least, we know that, you know, we as humans have not acted in those ways, right? I mean, we think of ourselves as moral agents and are in important ways guided by values. You know, I think any plausible description of how human societies function is where we're actually quite bound by certain kinds of norms and rules and so on. But we certainly think that we have some kind of moral justification for acting in very dominating ways towards non-human animals. And in the past, uh, humans thought that they had all kinds of plausible justifications for acting in very dominating ways to humans who were parts of different groups. And, you know, even though we're pretty smart and we're pretty good at means and reasoning and pretty good at accomplishing our goals, that didn't somehow imply a stop on us acting in those ways. So I guess you'd have to have a pretty fanciful, I think, theory to figure out why that would be impossible in machines or why in machines spontaneously a form of morality would evolve that always spares humans or takes the sort of well-being of humans as a very, very weighty input. I'll put it this way. If we build super smart machines, give them a lot of power, and they have no norms and values and laws, then we're in deep trouble. Whether we can solve that problem depends on whether we can do a really good version of a really hard problem that you just put your finger on. And if we can't, we maybe shouldn't be building those machines, right? Or not empowering them, like keeping them in sandboxes, but it's not clear that we can keep them in sandboxes. And so these are serious problems. Like I'm not with Eliezer Yudkowsky saying there's a hundred percent chance that all humans die. I think that you know, partly it depends on what the machines even want to do. And it partly depends on whether we can construct them with some kind of moral sense and whether we can construct them with an adequate moral sense. But it's a real problem. And I am with Yudkowsky in saying, we don't really have a plan here. People kind of make fun of Yudkowsky. I mean, he has his followers, but most people make fun of him. But if you say, what is the plan here? Nobody really has a plan. I think that the plan has to involve engaging exactly the hard questions that you just talked about. How do you make a system that can behave ethically 
that doesn't just license a lot of bad behavior. I would say that I think that the existence of systems of human laws that are reasonably functional give us some hope that this might be a solvable problem, but don't guarantee that it's a solvable problem. And those weaknesses are likely to be inherited by machines. And so we need a real plan here, and I don't think we have it. So to go back to the problem of terrible food in two small portions, I mean, if you're convinced that it is going to be incredibly difficult to govern these actually superior machines. And if it's unlikely that we're going to sandbox them in an effective way, it strikes me politically as unlikely that we're going to have an effective prohibition on the development of these highly intelligent AI models in part because there's dynamics of geopolitical competition between different countries and so on that's going to make that very hard. Then shouldn't you be cheering on your field going in the wrong direction? Aren't you actually posing a huge danger to humanity if you're right about your underlying beliefs of what will make for effective AI and are able to persuade people of that? Shouldn't you be hoping that people keep going in the direction of, you know, ever more sophisticated, mediocre AI that gets a little bit better and a little bit better at writing fake op-eds, but is it never going to go beyond that? I think it's a really good question. I worry about it sometimes. I think that we're going to wind up building better AI at some point, no matter what I say, and that we should prepare for what we're going to do about it, no matter what I say. I think that the concerns with over-empowered, mediocre AI are pretty serious and need to be dealt with no matter what. And that I actually sign that letter on a pause. I don't expect that it's going to happen, but I think that we as a society should be considering these things. I think we should be considering them even in conjunction with our competitors. I think, as you say, the geopolitical reality is that probably people will not And so we have to prepare for that contingency as well, that you know, sooner or later we will get to, let's call it artificial general intelligence as a shorthand. I think we should be figuring out what we're going to do when we get there. If I were king, I would say, let's pause on building artificial general intelligence until we feel confident that we can solve the alignment problem. And meanwhile, let's think about how we're using the stuff that we have, how we're going to legislate it, protect people, what tools we're going to build in order to identify misinformation, cybercrime, how we're going to contend with all of these risks. But I'm not here to say I see a great solution to all of this. Like I, I think these are serious problems. I'm worried about them. The best solution that I proposed probably is an article I wrote in The Economist a couple of weeks ago with Anka Royale, where we said it's time to build an international AI agency, at least a little bit like the atomic energy agencies, in which there's international collaboration, there's scientists working on the problems, there's money to do scientific research to build the new tools that we need, there's coordination on the governance. And that's a meta solution. It's not a detailed specific solution. But I think that the problems here are serious enough that we can't just assume that they're going to kind of solve themselves. And we have so little global coordination around what to do about any of this stuff. It's a mess right now. I mean, this is part of what I'm trying to tell you. I cannot guarantee that any of these solutions are going to work. I mean, Hinton said something similar. It was one of his first televised interviews after he left Google. And somebody said, so how do we answer this? And he said, I don't know. 
I'm trying to raise awareness of the problem. So Hinton and I have historically totally disagreed about the role of symbolic AI, and we've had nasty disagreements. He has his favorite Gary Marcus quote on his webpage, which tells you how much he doesn't like me. And yet on this, we're basically agreeing. I wrote a summary about his views and mine and how much they converge for the Daily Mail, saying there's short-term risk, there's long-term risk, we need international scientific collaboration. I sent it to Hinton and he said, I pretty much agree with every word. So you have people on opposite sides of the intellectual spectrum about the issues we talked about earlier, both saying, yeah, there's a lot to worry about short-term and long-term. We need more scientists involved and we don't yet know a solution. Gary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sorry to end with a frightening note, but maybe the point is we really need to wake up and start dealing with this right away. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.